Welcome to the Three Martini Lunch. Grab a stool next to Greg Corumbus of Radio America and Jim Garrity of National Review. Three Martinis coming up. Very glad you're with us for the Tuesday edition of the Three Martini Lunch. I need to clear up any confusion about yesterday's program. Jim was out because of Columbus Day, not because he was still celebrating the Jets win, but they could have overlapped. I don't know. Uh, yeah, let's let's not rush to that explanation, Greg. <laughs> Two-game winning streak. We don't get to celebrate those very often. A winning record in mid-October, Jim. Uh, you're going to remember this season. Meaningful games but you know, before Halloween. <laughs> Indeed. Uh, but we do have uh, good... Crazy and crazy martinis for you today, and oddly enough, our good one comes to us from MSNBC. There's a lot of really disturbed people over at MSNBC and their political analysis right now, and we'll get to one of those in just a moment. But one of the few rational people over there is Steve Kornacki. He's just the numbers cruncher. He, he He's the guy with the rolled up sleeves, and he's uh, you know using the interactive map all over the place. He's crunching polling data. So he's actually looking at facts, whereas uh, you know most of the rest of the hosts there are doing anything but. So yesterday, he's uh, explaining what the most important issues are for voters and how those break between the two parties. And let's just say it's looking pretty good for Republicans. When you look at our most recent NBC poll here and you ask folks, what is the single most important issue that's going to drive your vote in this year's midterm elections? A combined 34 percent cite either jobs in the economy or inflation. And you combine those two, that's the biggest single number you're going to get. And on that question, the Republicans have a nearly 30-point advantage over the Democrats. It's 8% in our most recent poll who cite abortion as the number one issue in their midterm vote. So, Jim, when inflation and the economy are the biggest issues and they break by 30 points in favor of Republicans, uh, you know, doesn't mean there won't be a lot of tight races. But when people feel it in their pocketbooks, it's hard for whatever else the Democrats want them to think about, whether it's abortion or anything else, uh, to really gain enough oxygen because the economic situation just dominates people's lives right now. Yeah, you could see why in the aftermath of the Dobbs decision, Democrats might think, "Ooh, you know, this is this is a game changer. And I think you look at Biden's approval number rating and, and some other polling. I think it's safe to say, yeah, that galvanized the Democratic grassroots a bit. Um, but if you're a Democratic candidate, these are the folks who you're supposed to have in your back pocket. These, these are not voters you're supposed to be worrying about. So it put it closer to a normal midterm election environment rather than the you know red tsunami, worry about Patty Murray up in Washington state type environment to a more normal red wave environment, which is kind of where I see things being right here. There are two ways if you're, if you're mainstream media, you, you see, okay, it looks like Republicans are going to have a good year. There are two approaches you can take. You can take the Kornacki approach, which is to say, well, look, these are the issues that matter most to voters. On when asked who they which party they prefer on these issues, they, you know, sometimes generally, sometimes overwhelmingly prefer the Republicans. Ergo, Republicans are probably going to have a pretty good year. Like, you know, the MSNBC audience is very far to the left, but you know what? It's like, hey, you know what? This is what's going to happen. Brace yourselves. Uh, this is coming, and you know, if you're, you're if you're a Democrat, you'll probably find some you know nice, pleasant surprises here and there. But by and large, it's going to be a lousy year for you. As I read today's morning jolt, like I saw a Washington Post columnist talking about Val Demings' odds, basically talking up her odds of beating Marco Rubio. Now, I suppose it it could happen. Stranger things have happened, but by and large, 
Florida's a pretty darn red state. Rubio's an incumbent. He's running for his third term. Uh, DeSantis is looking really good in the governor's race. And Rubio has led every poll except for one, which was back in late summer and was a registered voter. So you add all that up, Marco Rubio looks pretty looks pretty safe not not locked iron lock it up take it away but really you need the ball to bounce a lot of ways for val demings and it's it's october 11th i could see writing the hey keep an eye on val demings type piece in in midsummer maybe all the way up to labor day but by the time you get into fall it's time to move on from that uh cnn did another story where they said well you know mike lee might be in trouble in utah he's running against evan mcmullen the de facto democrat out there and Mike Lee has yet to trail a poll. Now, he's not going to have a huge lead. We're talking about three points, four points, five points, six points, sometimes up to like seven. That's a less than you might expect in a state like Utah. But, you know, that, that it's to some point, if Evan McMullen's going to win, he needs to lead. And it hasn't happened yet. And I don't know. I don't think it's going to happen between now and November. So it kind of feels really late in the cycle for the, oh, Democrats could have some big wins here. Uh, type stories. And I don't think these, I'm not sure these folks are really doing their readers a service by talking up the Democratic chances in races like that. I mean, if, if this ends up having more Democrats utterly just blown away and horrified and stunned by these election results, I guess, you know, part of me enjoys it. Part of me also feels a little bad for those folks. But again, I kind of feel like this is almost journalistic malpractice to be talking up the odds of Democrats enjoying big wins uh, come election day 2022. You mentioned uh, Evan McMullen, who should have a G as his party for grifter. But yeah. uh, you know who's the one Republican senator who won't support Mike Lee? Mitt Romney. And so that's, why I think, one of the reasons that race is closer than it should be. Uh, and so hopefully uh, Mitt will get on board. But it sounds like he's uh, might be secretly uh, for McMullen in this one. But, uh, Jim, uh, just in case you thought that the rationality of Steve Kornacki might extend to some of the hosts on MSNBC, you can be disabused of that pretty quickly. Here's Mehdi Hassan's analysis of what's going to happen to this country, regardless of who wins. If the election deniers on the right win in 2022, in November, next month, to me, democracy looks like it's over in America. Fascism is here to stay. And if they lose... We get maybe another insurrection, domestic terrorism, a civil war, God forbid. I mean, is there any scope for optimism here? So there you go, Jim. It's going to be awesome either way. If the election deniers on the right win, democracy is over in America. Fascism is here to stay. And if they lose, we get a civil war. So, wow, all over the place. Just uh, lots of lots of good stuff coming from MSNBC. I was going to say, if... Um... If there's not a civil war, will Mehdi Hassan say, oops, never mind? <laughs> I, I really thought that was going to happen. I thought this was thought this was Fort Sumter all over again. Sorry, it was just a car backfiring. All right, on to our first crazy martini now, Jim. And it's, I don't know, the, the left is always excited about certain concepts over and over and over again, even though places that have already tried these ideas have uh, watched them crash and burn. And as this green agenda and, and more of the Biden vision gets laid out here, it just appears that it, we're banging our heads against the wall again. Uh, there's all sorts of examples in Europe of people moving away from fossil fuels and energy costs going up. And that was even before the whole Putin situation with natural gas. But now the New York Times, to its credit, mind you, especially this close to an election, are pointing out that, you know, maybe high speed rail isn't going to be the uh, cure-all for our transportation 
<laughs> concerns that we thought it was going to be because Pete Buttigieg is all in on high-speed rail. But the New York Times says the design for the nation's most ambitious infrastructure project, and they're talking about the one in California that is still being built and will probably never be finished, was never based on the easiest or most direct route. Instead, the train's path out of Los Angeles was diverted across a second mountain range to the rapidly growing suburbs of the Mojave Desert, a route whose most salient advantage appeared to be that it ran through the district of a powerful Los Angeles County supervisor. It goes on to say that the rail authority said it has accelerated the pace of construction on the starter system, but at the current spending rate of $1.8 million a day, according to projections widely used by engineers and project managers, the train could not be completed this century. Jim, there's 78 years left in this century, and they're not going to be done, and they have dumped millions, I assume billions at this point, many billions actually, into this project. And so when the politicians get involved with stuff like this, and it's not just in California, it turns into a giant graft and a giant boondoggle, and it never works out, and yet the Democrats never learn. Greg, when I saw that story in the New York Times, which by the way was an excellent story, it's the sort of thing that the New York Times, I'd, I'd like to see them doing every week, you know, taking, you know, looking hard at some much touted project that people tended to forget about and saying, hey, what's going on with that? Whatever, whatever happened to that project, which was supposed to be the wave of the future? Thought back all the way back to the year 2015, a very different environment uh, in which, you know, the TV show True Detective on HBO was this very, you know, had a phenomenal first season. Everybody loved it. They did the second season. And the second season was all about like corruption in California. And one of the subplots was about California's high-speed rail project. And uh, for those who don't remember or didn't watch, Vince Vaughn played this kind of ruthless, ambitious, mob-connected businessman who had big plans for being this big mogul. And a big part of it was going to be this uh, involved the high-speed rail line, in which he was basically kind of like a real estate scam, buying it and then reselling it back to the state. And there were all kinds of talk about, ah, uh, basically they saw the high-speed rail project because this giant pile of money, right? Because of a state proposition and federal funding and all of this stuff, it basically has turned into a giant pile of money. And this was their chance to get rich. And I always, I, I, I loved it. I was like, oh, this is, you know, besides enjoying the show, I guess up until that season, uh, I was like, oh, uh, this is funny. And also, isn't this kind of funny that this thing that Dem California Democrats think is the greatest thing since sliced bread is basically a plot point of being this giant pile of money that, uh, that these you know corrupt businessmen and mobsters are trying to get their hands on. And I remember a few Democrats kind of grumbling about this and saying, wait a minute, wait a minute. He's, he's, he's saying this thing that we like might not be so good. And of course, the rest of the season went downhill from there. But by the way, that was seven years ago. And they're still not any closer to getting a uh, functioning rail line on any of the points of this. Uh, of this, or you know, they've actually they've, they've they're closer, but we are still not to that. And so the idea that this has been this the wave the, the future has been coming in California for a long time, and you see these you know th these commercials and this attitude in California where where the future happens. No, not anymore. And you know the high speed rails failure in California, where you have a whole bunch of cities all pretty much in a row. Right, San Diego, Los Angeles, Central Valley, and then you got you know San Francisco. That's the only kind of circumstance where high-speed rail might work. Because I, my, I was just chatting about this with my colleague Charlie Cook, and he pointed out high—I guess it was Rich Lowry observed—high-speed rail doesn't work for uh, for freight. I guess because of both the potential damage to what's in the freight cars and the potential damage to the rail lines and the weight of the cars. High-speed rail can only really work for passengers. So you need something like this. And if they can't make it work in California, 
it's not likely to work anywhere else. And this idea of, oh, someday we'll have them cross country and all that stuff like Biden talks about, it's never been realistic. So kudos to the New York Times, not something we say very often, but also just kind of a recognition. It is time for Democrats to kind of recognize when you've spent the better part of a generation working on a project and it's not closer and they're still talking, we may not get done this century. It's time to recognize that red tape and the usual politics have made you more dysfunctional than like North African countries. Well said. I said uh, before your comments there, Jim, that uh, it's a boondoggle and they never learn. Maybe that's what they've learned. They've learned they can get rich after this, even yeah. though nothing ever gets done. Uh, kudos over also to John Sexton over at Hot Air for putting in the exact uh, budgetary numbers here. Uh, yeah, it's well into the billions. The original budget back in 2008 was $33 billion. Uh, earlier this year, it's been revised to $113 billion, so well over three times that mark. That's billion with a B, mind you, and they're still nowhere close to getting done here 14 years uh, after they started. So uh, it's good to be a, a grafting politician out in California, I guess. Amazing. All right. Let's talk about uh, our second crazy martini now here. And uh, some might be surprised that it is the crazy martini. Some might say, oh, isn't this a good thing? Uh, Because we've had uh, quite a few things very nice to say about Tulsi Gabbard over the years, especially, you know, several years ago when she was calling out Barack Obama for refusing to refer to Islam as terrorism. So anyway, Tulsi Gabbard today making it official that she has left the Democratic Party. I can no longer remain in today's Democratic Party that's under the complete control of an elitist cabal of warmongers who are driven by cowardly wokeness, who divide us by racializing every issue and stoking anti-white racism, who actively work to undermine our God-given freedoms that are enshrined in our Constitution, who are hostile to people of faith and spirituality who demonize the police but protect criminals at the expense of law-abiding Americans, who believe in open borders, who weaponize the national security state to go after their political opponents, and above all, who are dragging us ever closer to nuclear war. Now, I believe in a government that's of the people, by the people, and for the people. Unfortunately, today's Democratic Party does not. Instead, it stands for a government that is of, by, and for the powerful elite. Now, I'm calling on my fellow common sense, independent-minded Democrats to join me in leaving the Democratic Party. So, Jim, the surprise to some of us is that she was still in the Democratic Party. But uh, the fact, I guess, that she's doing it a couple weeks here before Election Day, maybe she thinks she'll get some folks to follow her in that direction. But given all her time now on Fox, I'm guessing most people on the left have already kind of emotionally and mentally separated from Tulsi Gabbard. I will always appreciate her, of course, for slicing and dicing Kamala Harris on the debate stage and and, and a few others as well. Uh, but in the end, while it's always nice to have converts, I'm not sure that it's going to mean a lot of extra followers to the GOP. And of course, uh, the thing that she's most known for right now is uh, her, her criticism of uh, our policy with regards to Ukraine, which a lot of people interpret as support for Russia. So uh, careful what we're getting here, I guess, even though she has done some uh, valuable work in the past and and what you heard in the comments there, uh, some of those issues are she's spot on there as well. Yeah, I think the most cynical take I'd seen on Twitter so far was, I guess that Putin money's drying up. Now, of course, by the way, that's something that Hillary Clinton had said. It's never been proven. In fact, it's never even come close to being proven. 
I, you know, wrote a, a, you know, every time there was a Democratic candidate in the 2020 cycle, I went back and did my 20 things you probably didn't know about them. And I think um, isolationism or whether you want to characterize it as non-interventionism has been like a core part of Tulsi Gabbard's way she sees the world for a long time. So this is not necessarily pro-Putinism. This is a question of whether, you know, intervention in Eastern Europe or how much we uh, should oppose Putin, how much of that is in U.S. and national security interests. I don't think she's right on this, but I don't think this is a reason to accuse her falsely of being a Putin agent. And, uh, you know, Hillary Clinton was way out of line when she did that way back in 2019. I do think you're right, though, that basically this is we've seen, you know, her trending in this direction for quite some time. Uh, yes, she did demonstrate that uh, Kamala Harris was, had a glass jaw, so to speak. I think subsequent events have demonstrated, yeah, it's a really glass jaw, <laughs> and that there was always a crazy hype to performance ratio surrounding uh, Kamala Harris from the beginning. Once you've you know appeared on Fox News regularly, and in fact, Tulsi Gabbard has even guest hosted for Tucker Carlson, I don't think anyone is that shocked that she no longer feels any need to affiliate with the Democratic Party. I don't think this announcement or her formal separation from the party is going to have any big consequences. Um, And I think you look at her performance in the 2020 Democratic presidential primary, Tulsi Gabbard was always this fascinating political figure, but I don't think you can say she spoke for any significant faction of the party. You know, significantly younger, significantly more unusual family background, uh, you know, the surfing congresswoman, she had a million profiles written about her, all very interesting, but none of it really translated into anything resembling a national movement. So, you know, welcome or, or you know, if she chooses to affiliate with Republicans or, or you know, she, I, I, I don't think we can say, aha, this is symbolic of this massive shift. I think we're expecting, you know, you'll be seeing poll numbers reacting the same way. I think this is simply formalizing something that's been works in a long time. And on the welcome, on the one hand, welcome. On the other hand, Republicans, let's not pretend that she has suddenly, you know, changed everything and in line with all of our views. This is kind of, you know, now fitting in more with the Fox News studios that she's been hanging around for quite some time, going all the way back to uh, the year 2020. Do you think she has ambitions of actually running as a Republican or do you think she likes kind of the role she's got right now where she's the former Democrat who can comment uh, with some additional insights on the insanity of what the Democrats are doing? God, I hope not. And it's not anything against her, but like, look, you got, you know, less than 1% or 1% in the Democratic primary. You know, the Republican primary in 2024 is likely to come down to Donald Trump and Ron DeSantis. Yeah, you hear about people saying, oh, Pence is going to run and uh, Mike Pompeo and Larry Hogan. And, you know, I I think there's really not that many. And I think she would just kind of end up being an afterthought in the Republican primary. And also, like, again, she'd have to formally register as a Republican. And I'd really like you to be a Republican for more than like 20 minutes before (laughs) you choose to run for president. Oh, by the way, you didn't do much very well last time around. So why at some like in some level, running for president has to stop being a hobby for people unless your name is Pat Paulson. (laughs) fascinating to watch we'll see what influence she might have on politics in general but i think you're right that she will not be out there in 2024 so but we're gonna find out soon we're gonna find out soon jim who's in 2024 i mean election day is less than a month away now and pretty soon after that you're gonna hear all about the exploratory committees and before the snow melts we're gonna have a lot of people officially running for president so i'm forming an exploratory committee and also i have my campaign book out (laughs) So really, I'm using your donations to run a really awesome book tour with a lot of stops in Iowa and New Hampshire. 
Amazing. Well, let's uh, let's do one at a time here. Let's take care of the midterms and hopefully that that red wave does materialize. Jim, good to have you back. See you tomorrow. See you tomorrow, Greg. Jim Garrity, National Review. I'm Greg Columbus of Radio America. Thanks so much for being with us today. Do subscribe to the Three Martini Lunch podcast if you don't already and tell a friend about us as well. Uh, thank you so much for your five-star ratings and your kind reviews. Please keep those coming. Also, uh, you can get us on your home devices. Don't forget about that. All you have to say is play Three Martini Lunch podcast. Get Jim's new thriller, Gathering Five Storms, the accompanying short story, Saving the Devil. Follow us on Twitter. He's at Jim Garrity. I'm at Dateline underscore DC. Have a terrific Tuesday and join us again on Wednesday for the next Three Martini Lunch. A lot of the media just doesn't cover the most important news of the day. I'm Byron York with The Byron York Show. In my latest episodes, I discuss how the border crisis is continually getting worse and the administration is only concerned about accommodating the illegal migrants who enter the country and not facing the real problem of stopping them. Don't forget to download and subscribe to my daily No Chit Chat podcast. I don't talk about every single issue, just the ones you need to know the most. Subscribe on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts.